And I don't think a lot has changed. It's more so kind of fortified. It's that like through it all, like through it all, like all the craziness. Like I think most people just take the time to think about everything that has happened just in the span of a year, the last two years, three years. Like a lot has happened from the pandemic to layoffs to all this stuff. Like the stock market does not care. Like it has completely ignored and defied odds. And yes, we've seen some dips, but like its primary purpose to create value for shareholders has not changed. It is still trucking along. And so if you were invested before then and you are invested now, or rather you decide to invest today, like that should be such a fundamental core part of everything that we do because the value is there. And literally all you have to do is buy something as simple as a total stock market index fund. And that will continue to grow and add value with no middleman, no complication, no analysis, no nothing. Welcome to the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Julian. And today we are reflecting on one year since we've published our book, Cashing Out. Yay, reflections. Happy birthday, Kind of. (laughs) But before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to Anissa4334, who left us a glowing five-star review with the title, Love This Podcast! Exclamation mark. Anissa said they stumbled upon this podcast and can't stop listening, which sounds like a problem, but it's really not. (laughs) She says, or they said, I don't know the gender, let me not assume. She says the host are savvy and really educating the listeners on every aspect of money. Keep the information coming. So thank you, Anissa4334. We really appreciate you taking the time to leave feedback. And we hope that you enjoy this episode and many more. Yeah, yeah. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone, really. I mean, just her in particular, but I'm assuming it's, well, yes. But thank (laughs) you to everyone. Honestly, it really, really means a lot to us. Um, Okay, so we are, as I said, celebrating one year, 12 months, kind of, sort of, to the day. I don't really know exactly when this will drop, but I also, as we were thinking earlier about like, all right, when was it? Was it the 14th? Was it the 18th? Because our book came out, uh, it was published or and it was weird, right? Because it was like the published date, but then there were some places where I think people were saying like, oh, actually, I think it's, a, I, I, I have it. It was like the 12th or the 9th. <laughs> and I was like, how is that possible? So, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. We'll get into all of the things that we've learned, but we also know that it kind of overlapped with a couple of other things that were happening, like Juneteenth and Father's Day. And so it's good to know that like every single year, we're likely going to reflect on that experience. Obviously not on the podcast, but, you know, personally, we're like, wow, we've got three things to remember or- <laughs> You're not you know, getting a someday. Father's Day gift for the book, baby, I think, well, to be clear. You know what? I, I feel like <laughs> on behalf of all men who, <laughs> uh, especially fathers who have been getting the short end of the stick, it's like I, I had to literally write a book. And then my birthday is like early June. So it's like I'm I'm taking yeah, June over, June dude. Like the lot. whole summer is just going to be my whole thing. But you no, know, around this time last year, we actually recorded two episodes about the book. And we said the word excited so much during that episode that we actually gave a book away to the person who came the closest to (laughs) how many times that we said it, like guessing how many times we said it. So (laughs) shout out to Ed Kwan, who won uh, your Gemini brother, who is probably also milking the month of June. He should. (laughs) (laughs) He should. He should. We're all in this together. This is on behalf of all, all Geminis. But in all seriousness, right, as I'm thinking back to where we were both 
kind of mentally and physically, right? I think right around this time, we'd actually just come back from an impromptu trip to Disney World, right? I think your parents decided that, you know, we were going to take a vacation as a family and it was fun. We all went and the kids had a great time. It was hot. It was super hot. I did not enjoy that part at all, but we got tons of great memories, tons of great pictures. We also celebrated my birthday out there in Orlando, which was fun. And I think it was a really nice uh, opportunity just to get away before like the actual release. Because again, this was our first book. We had, I mean, honestly, nothing to sort of refer to. This was unlike anything that we'd ever done before. And obviously we'd had conversations with other authors around what to expect, but nothing really prepares you for doing it. This is part of the reason why they call it a book baby. You know, it's like you can read all the books you want, but like just like when a baby is born, like you really do not know what you're going to get, what to expect. Uh, It's, you know, it's going to be hard, but you don't know how often, how quick, like it's it's really confusing. But anyway, there was Orlando. And then we actually on the day that the book was released, we were in New York uh, because there was a segment that was released on Good Morning America, which we were part of. And just that whole experience was really, really fun. Shooting that here in Atlanta, then going to Atlanta. I'm sorry, then going to New York and literally seeing your face and your book on Jumbotron. Like that's bucket list, you know, that that's obviously never happened before. And then coming back for Atlanta for the uh, the official book Book launch launch, party. So, yeah. Y'all made me cry at the book launch. We did. We have it on video. (laughs) Well, let me back up because I know we have some new new listeners and people who may not have read the book yet. So I want to start the episode by just talking about why we wrote it and some of the themes that we covered. So just to set some context, traditional publishing is notoriously slow. So it took about three years to get from book proposal to book on a shelf and in people's hands. And during that three years, as you all know, the world was dealing with this once in a century global health crisis and the world of money and work were both just being changed. So the publisher that we ended up signing the book deal with, and we'll get a little bit into how that process works later in the episode, the publisher was Portfolio Books, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. And Portfolio's mission is to write books for ambitious people and to share ideas that inform and improve people's lives within the workplace. And they do this by ensuring that the big idea in every book that they publish is a counterintuitive idea. So that being said, the premise or the counterintuitive idea of our book, Cashing Out, was pretty simple. It was that you win the wealth game by walking away. Mm -hmm. And the reason we chose that is because we knew that most people know that getting ahead in their career is some sort of a game But people still approach that game as if winning is making it to the top, when in reality, very few people are able to win that way. Yeah. So cashing out was this financial blueprint and career cheat code that basically teaches you how to know when you're winning and position yourself to quit while you're ahead and walk away on your own terms, which was a pretty wild idea at the time. There weren't many examples of people who walked away in their prime on their own terms. And now we kind of see professional athletes bowing out gracefully. We see political leaders and and princes and princesses denouncing their, their titles for this reason. Even if you simply scroll down a LinkedIn timeline on any given day, you can see more people stepping out and kind of betting on themselves. But when you look back, does what we created still feel relevant in today's world as it did when we were doing it? 
Well, yeah. I mean, again, it was not that long ago. Uh, you know, <laughs> it feels like, it was, like forever. It, ago. <laughs> it, well, certainly the the beginning of the process feels like that was a different world, right? Like, and it was like that was a, we wrote that book, uh, or were writing that book in a completely different world while it was changing in real time. I, I think for sure that some things have changed, but I, I think that the message and, and the underlying premise of the book is, is 100% still relevant. And even when I think back to some of the core parts of the book that we spoke about, there were so many things too, which was tough. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying like, it was so much that we really wanted to squeeze into it. Cause I remember even back then uh, talking about the impact of artificial intelligence and the role that it was going to have on jobs. And back then that just sort of seemed like, yeah, that's something that we're talking about, but we'll cross over when we get there. Literally since then, like we've seen a complete explosion of AI and it's all anyone is talking about even now, right? Yeah, we there's also, a whole chapter on this in our book. Yeah, we talk <laughs> about this. a section of a chapter. Yeah, we, we, we talk about that because, again, true to who the book was written for, the reality was like there was evidence suggesting that it was going to disproportionately negatively impact the African-American community. And so we said, hey, this is something that we really should be talking about. There's also just in the process of sharing our own story, talking about the role that work uh, and the negative impact that work and overwork and obsession and burnout had on our overall wellness. Like, I think that's part of the opening story as we're talking about some of these new realizations that we've come through or gone through rather. And since then, and again, like not that we could predict the future, but when people talk about surgeon general warnings, I think most people think about things like alcohol and the risk that it causes to pregnancy or smoking and cigarettes and the role that that can have in terms of leading cancer. Well, like there have been other surgeon general warnings that have been issued. And one that was issued uh, not too long ago was basically highlighting the role that toxic workplaces and work can have on your overall well-being. And they basically said, like, this is a major problem and to the point where the U.S. government is stepping in and saying, hey, we should really be mindful of this because like, we're seeing this huge rise in terms of burnout and anxiety and depression. And then I think the last thing that, like, I think is, you know, we talked about it in our book, but it's still very relevant now. And I think especially right now, given sort of the uncertainty, is just layoffs, like how common it is, how, like, devastating it can be. And I think it just goes to show that, like, again, we've said it before, and I actually don't think we put this in the book. I wish we did. But look, we've said it before in speaking engagements that some jobs are good. A few of them are even great, but all jobs are temporary. And a lot of us really need to be looking at our careers and wrapping that sort of idea around everything that we do. And so, yeah, to answer your question, I think the message is still very, very relevant. And even when I think about the time that we spent on the book tour and meeting other readers and listeners, you know, the other message that we shared with them was the idea that we could all be living through a revolution and not know it. I think so many of us feel like, you know, when these big ideas and these big things are sort of barreling through everyday culture, that everyone's paying attention to it. And I think that's actually not the case. I don't know that that's ever really been the case. It wasn't the case when this country was born. It certainly wasn't the case even when we think about things like the civil rights movement. There were some people who were just like happily standing by. Absolutely. And so right now there are a number of revolutions happening right now from the labor revolution to financial revolutions, technology, all of these things in some cases are even converging and changing life as we know it. And so I think we, we share that with people as a bit of a comfort to say, hey man, you're not crazy. You know, you're right. And everything that you're reading, everything that you're seeing is accurate and the threat is real, but not everyone is tuned in, you know, so it's okay, And don't allow yourself to get distracted by that, because so many of us more often than not feel like, well, if the group isn't moving, then it must not necessarily be real. And that's 
never really been the case. Yeah, I think it's a huge creative risk when you're talking about creating something that asks people to approach a known problem from an unconventional angle. Mm -hmm. It's a marketing challenge for one, because you got to explain why the conventional wisdom doesn't work, which we did in the first half of the book. But then you got to lead this naturally skeptical person to water and convince them that it's okay to drink it, even though there's not a lot of other people drinking it. Right. But I think to your point, the initial reception of the book was one of the more pleasant surprises seeing everyone's content and aha moments as they kind of displayed the book for photos or wrote comments that they were gifting it. We actually provided books for a, uh, we didn't provide them, but a a groom provided books for his groomsmen at a wedding. Like they've (laughs) they've been wedding favors, you know, it's just really heartwarming and validating. And it reminds me that there is an audience that's willing to be honest about what's not working At the same time, there were these reminders that some counterintuitive ideas can make people feel threatened. And I remember there was a woman who read our book and wrote to us saying how much she loved it, but admitted that it was also a little scary. And I didn't know how to take that because it's not like we were writing a murder mystery. (laughs) Like, what was so scary about the truth? But after I sat with it for a while, I realized that part of my job as a writer or a creator is to really help people discover new language to describe what's happening to them. There's this term called linguistic relativity, and it's this idea that language shapes how we think. And there's actually a really great podcast by Radiolab called Colors, where they're asking the question, to what extent is color a physical thing in the physical world? And to what, is ex- to what extent is it created in our minds? And it's a it's a wild episode. Like, you know, <laughs> y'all know I'd be on the fringes of the Internet, mm-hmm. but deep the sketchy in- <laughs> side, <laughs> not not that side, <laughs> just on like the more whatever. Anyway, deep into this episode, they actually get into the evolution of language to describe colors. But the point that they make in the episode is that we can only notice or perceive the colors that we have the words for. There is a tribe in Africa, for example, that can't see blue because they don't have a word for it. And it just gave me this aha moment because there are how many, like how many encounters do we have at the intersection of work and money or life and money that we can't notice or perceive because we don't have a word or the language for it. You know what I'm saying? Like it could be our version of blue where it's happening, but like, we don't know to call it blue. It's just like that thing that we we don't have a word for it. Yeah, that actually brings me back as I'm, you know, you're making me think about one of our favorite stops. I'm not going to say which was our favorite stop, but on our book tour, I think we hit around six different cities and we did a couple of smaller uh, stops, but those were like six official ones. And I think uh, one that I really enjoyed for sure was uh, DC. Uh, first of all, it was like our largest event. I mean, I want to say there was like maybe 75 people in that room. And it was some family and some close friends that showed up. Tons of your friends showed up just to kind of help out, which we really, really needed and appreciated. But we always joke about the fact that th- there seemed to be like the alphabet soup of professionals in the room. I mean, it was like, I work for the IRS and I work for the FBI and I work for the DOE and it was all kinds of just people like the best and the brightest of like every single group that were in that room. Uh, And again, we were sharing some of these ideas and sort of the common thread, uh, not just from the book, but some of the stories that we'd collected throughout uh, the journey. 
and we were talking about the eye twitch and the eye twitch was really a, a personal story going back to the importance of wellness and that being one of the first signs that our bodies were kind of rejecting the path that we were on. Like we were so work focused, so obsessed, grinding so hard that our literal eyes would just, just start twitching out of nowhere. And if you Google that, like you'll see that it's a sign of like stress and anxiety and restlessness. And we were like in our thirties and dealing with this stuff. And it was like, wow, like this is like, if, if this is where we are, like this early in our careers, this is crazy. And as we were sharing this story, like, and at this point I felt like, all right, like, you know, we're not the only ones here, but I started to realize that actually not everyone can relate to this. So there were some people in the room who, as soon as they saw that, like, they kind of like hid their heads in shame. They were like, oh my God, that's me. For being honest, there were literally people in the room whose eyes were twitching at that moment. There were a couple other people who were like, oh my gosh, like, I didn't realize that to your point, like that. I didn't realize I was a sign of stress. Right. I thought that that was just me, I, you know, or I, I just Nerves. thought it was me. That's just what I do. Right. Yeah. I didn't really talk to anyone about it. So until you told me that that is a sign of stress, you might want to slow down. And then I think there were another group of people uh, that sort of felt very much affirmed, right? Like they were reading our book, not necessarily from a place of like, wow, this is all new information though. I'm sure some of it was, but it was very much affirming when they were like, yes, and that's exactly why I left. And that's exactly why I'm here because more of us need to be aware of these things because they start talking about what can happen when you start to ignore some of these other signs. And by the way, these aren't all physical sort of manifestations of stress. Sometimes they can be deeper, emotional, uh, spiritual, you name it. So that was really, really interesting. It also makes me think of a really, really great conversation that we had with uh, the author of The First, The Few, and The Only, who is Deepa Prashathaman. And she's incredibly, incredibly talented and incredibly insightful. We were talking about her book and some of the similarities between hers and ours. And she talked about this idea of delusions. And this was, I want to say, one of the first or maybe the second chapter of her book, these delusions that get in the way of so many of us sort of making progress in our careers and in our lives. And she, like us, talks about her own challenges with these delusions. But then she starts saying, like, these are the common threads as she's had conversations with a lot of professionals, specifically professionals or people of color. And it's all the things from, like, the idea of just being yourself at work the idea that when you grow in your career, when you make it to the top, then you can change. But until then, sort of just sort of follow the the uh, the path. It was like, all oh, these things are delusional, right? The idea right. that DEI is going to fix everything. The idea that capitalism and just putting your head down and as long as you deliver results, like all of these things do not fix any of the issues. They have been historically and they're not going to do it now either. And so she offers a different way, a different path, a different way of thinking uh, to help people sort of get through the grind and deal with some of the inner conflicts that they're dealing with. So all of that to say, as much as our book is about money, it was also very much about careers, very much about like confronting these uncomfortable truths, because so many of us want to know that if I do this, then this is going to happen. We want that certainty. And it's not true. It's no. not true in our money. It's not true in our relationships. And it's certainly not true with our finances. What we can do is make decisions that are uh, that increase the odds of yes. our success. And in some cases, we also need to know when to walk away to completely absolve ourselves exactly. of some of the inevitable consequences that come with a life that is obsessed with work or a life that is obsessed with making poor financial decisions. So, whew. There's yeah. A lot. <laughs> yeah. No, I love I love that because delusions was one of those words that that shook me because I had referred to these things as like 
old advice or time, you know, wisdom or whatever word I want to use. Right. And Deepa was the first one was like, girl, that's a delusion. It's a delusion. It's not, it's not like what you heard. It's not what quote unquote they said. It's a delusion. Yeah. And I think the same is true for, for cashing out. I think a lot of us, to your point, treat our lives like it's some kind of jukebox where it's like, I put this in, I push this button and this is what plays when it's more like a casino. And you really got to learn how to deal with the odds and the uncertainty and understand that the house always wins eventually. So when you up, you got to realize like what you're supposed to do and, and walk away before you get caught up. All right. So that's how the book, the work itself was received. But I also want to talk about how we were changed as the writers and any lessons that we learned that affected us personally. And I'll go first because I have a few. Um, The first one is that I learned that there is this list of underrated milestones that come with being an author. You know, everyone tends to focus on the launch plan and the first week of sales, which is kind of what determines if you make a bestseller list or whatever. And we had a great launch week. We sat at number one on Amazon across all formats and several categories. Like you mentioned, we had a big press feature with GMA and so many of our friends and colleagues and followers posted their excitement as the book came in the mail. Those were great. But the more underrated milestones, like the notes that we get from people as they were reading it, as if we were in some sort of like private book club, <laughs> that was fun. Yep. Uh, the random quotes that we see people tweeting, the first time anyone asked me to sign their book, yep. things like that. I just wish more people talked about because it reinforces the real reason why you spend so much time trying to figure out what words to put into this format. Just in the last couple of days, I think I got a, you know, a friend of mine reached out to me to shoot me a happy birthday text. And then when she was done, when we were done with all the catching up, she was like, oh, by the way, I've been meaning to tell you, like I've put into, you know, work some of the things from the book. Thank you so much. And I was like, wow. Like, you know, again, like that's not going to show up anywhere other than, you know, like, hey, you wrote a book. It really rocked my world. It made me think twice about these things. And I'm better off because of it. The other day, we also got a text from your mom (laughs) who was sort of (laughs) passing on a text from her (laughs) sister who was at church and someone was at church and recommended the book. And she thought like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Now we've made it. Now we've made it. Right. Like a big guy had went up there, made a recommendation. He mentioned our book. And that's how she knew that we weren't just like, you know, we are official. Like pastor has seen and heard your book and you have you are doing things and I'm just proud of you. (laughs) Okay, the second thing, because this is a money podcast, I'll also say I was surprised and changed by the compensation process or just like how authors get paid and how creative work gets funded. So the math behind book advances is wildly misunderstood, even by us when we jumped into this. Like, I don't think we fully understood how it worked, but basically it works very similar to a record deal in that if a publisher is interested in buying your book, they offer you an advance and then you typically sign up to get royalties, meaning a percentage of every book sold after your advance is paid back. Mm -hmm. That part people tend to understand. The part that gets tricky is when you realize that your advance is actually paid back based off of your royalty and not the revenue. So I'll use simple math here. Let's say you got a $10,000 advance for a $10 book where you're going to earn eventually a dollar per book. You don't need to sell a thousand copies of your $10 book to get to pay the $10,000 back. You actually need to sell 10,000 copies to earn out your advance. Because you got $10,000 up front, 
the royalty, the dollar from the first 10,000 books that are sold goes back to the publisher. You get nothing until book number 10,001 is sold. So really the best way to think about a book advance is to really think about it as a loan. It's not a perfect metaphor because it's not like you have to pay the $10,000 back if you don't sell enough books. But you don't earn additional income until your advance is paid back. And so I, you know, I think you get the point about it being alone. The reason why I bring this up is because we met a lot of people along the way that were inspired by our book journey and admitted to us that they wanted to write a book and were looking for advice from us. And I thought that was really surprising. I had no idea there were so many like secret authors out there (laughs) that want to write a book. And it's important that you understand how it's compensated because it does take up a lot of time. It costs you a lot, both financially, physically, emotionally, and the advanced process and the way that writers are compensated is about as outdated as it comes. Yeah. And, and I'll also say this, just in case there are people listening right now who are also interested in writing a book and they want to know what that process looks like. We're not going to get into all of those details unless you guys want us to like tweet us or something like that and say, hey, talk about that. And maybe we'll roll that into the, uh, the episode calendar. But um, to answer that question around like, you know, all those people who would ask those kinds of questions, like, well, what do you do? What would you recommend? Because there were also questions around whether or not they should go the traditional route versus the self-publishing route. And I think my answer has been pretty consistent. And it's like, look, like, don't do it for the money. Like, don't write a book for the money. I think people hear these things about getting an advance. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. The idea of a record deal for whatever reason sort of comes to mind and people feel like it's a great way to make money. Like, yes, you can make money, but I don't think you should be writing the book for the I, the purposes of making money. Like, I, for some people, you can do that. In most cases, the people who make a lot of money writing books are people who have the potential to sell hundreds of thousands of yeah. millions of books. Barack if you're Obama. not... Right. If you're one of those people, then sure, then yeah. you, you do it for the money. But like it, it takes a lot of time and money to get to that point. The second thing, and, and it's probably another way of looking at it, is it's thinking about whether or not you can afford to write a book. Because to your point, like that, that is an advance that you get. It's a lot of work. So you may not even be in a position where you can take on other things or other bodies of work. We're in a position where we can. And so like, yeah, we could afford to write a book, right? Some people may not be able to do that, especially if you're not able to uh, negotiate a really strong advance. And I would say, especially if you really want to write a good book, because if you're going to write a really, really good book, it might cost you a lot of money to have other people who are going to write with you from coaches. You may want to bring on your own editor and all of those things. And so that's certainly something to factor in. But in terms of like, I guess the positive side, in terms of what writing a book can actually afford you to do, and it, and it does. And for us, it certainly does allow you to open a lot of doors that I don't think would have opened for us had we not actually gone through that process. And I would say certainly had we not published our book with a reputable imprint and with a reputable publisher. And so what do I mean by that? Well, press, right? Like there's a big difference between when a book from a reputable imprint and publisher like Penguin Random House publishes a book. Those are the types of things that lead to other media wanting to cover the story, try to learn more about what the book is about. They have relationships with PR teams and they sort of can connect those dots and say, well, you have a need for this. We have an author who talks about that. And boom, that can lead to you getting exposure that may not happen otherwise. In our case, even in the case of television, right? Like, And this happened early, early on, like just from the proposal of writing the book, the stories that we told uh, in that book got passed on to an entertainment agent from our literary agent that opens up doors. And that's what led to us pitching 
I don't even know how many television networks on a particular show. And so those are things that, again, don't just happen anytime someone says, I want to write a book. That typically becomes a part of the process when you're writing something engaging at the right time and you have an audience. And again, it just sort of leads to other things that may not have happened uh, otherwise. And then lastly, I will say things like speaking engagements, right? Like when you write a book, I think it's one of those few opportunities that anyone has to explore an idea thoroughly and to have it edited and pruned by some of the best and brightest people. And when you're done with that, you've got you know, every chapter is a talk in and of itself. It's something that you can talk about at the drop of a hat, uh, wherever you are, whenever you are. You don't have to get ready because that work has already been done. And so all of that to say, I think, you know, for people who want to write a book, especially if you want to go to tr- the traditional route, you mentioned that it's a very, very slow process. I would say for most people, it's also not a very profitable sort of experience, yeah. you know. But again, don't write it for the money. Write it because you have a point of view, because you have something that you want to say, because there is a body of work that doesn't exist that you really want to create. And I think you just really, really want to be a published author. I don't think that there's any better reason to write a book than because you want to write a book. Not for and don't, the money. Don't, the let this, don't let this discourage you from writing in general. Like if you have something you want to say, there are many, many other mediums besides a book. That's the beauty of the digital world. Right. I think the best writers to Julian's point, have a little bit of both. They have some digital real estate and then they've got some real estate in print. And typically the digital real estate and the work that you've done online is making far more money than the traditional publishing real estate, which is a totally different podcast on how industries are going to respond to this. But yeah, I think the advice for most people is, is exactly what you said. Don't do it for the money. Do it because you have something that you need to say. Yeah. So the last thing that I want to talk about is sort of the evolution of our message and how our perspective has changed since writing Cashing Out. Okay. And this is a really big question for me. I think one, having written a book in the self-help transformational kind of space, I've become more of a student of change and how groups change together. I've learned just to recognize more clearly when people are on the cusp of a pivot or in transition or kind of in the middle of something. I've learned what role we play in kind of being their like crossing guard, their emotional crossing guard. Because I think in the past, I've thought about people who are squarely in one camp trying to move to another camp. And I haven't really given enough space to that middle transition where it's like, I'm just as far from the other camp as I am the one that I want to be in. How do I navigate the distance between where I was and where I want to go? Yeah. And I think the second thing that has changed my perspective since writing it is that I've become more intentional. I've always been pretty intentional about my media consumption, but I've become even more intentional because if the book process has taught me anything, it's that one, ideas are sold and two, influence can absolutely be bought. So I am super mindful about what I consume and how often I'm consuming it now that I understand a little inside baseball on how this whole thing works. Yeah. And and I'm really glad you're bringing this to the forefront because I, I've also thought about like the evolution of our message. And I was like, wow, like have I changed? Has much changed since we, and even further beyond just publishing the book, but even when I just think about when we first launched our, our brand and our platform and our original message back in 2017, what's changed uh, with me? I think the big thing for me is having a son, and especially now that he is older and we've had more memorable experiences with him 
uh, and I'm better able to kind of envision his future. And because I can, I can definitely see much more clearly what's at risk if we had made a different plan for our life. And by that, I mean, if we decided to stick with our corporate careers, like how would that change my relationship with him? How would my availability change? How would the way that we parent him change? All of those things. And I'm really glad that we've chosen the path that we have. And I think a lot of people kind of want that. They want to spend more time with their children. They want to, for lack of a better word, not outsource so much of their role as parents to teachers and other caretakers. I think the second thing that I'll say is that now that I am, who I'm saying this, but now that I'm 43 years old, still, you know, call it lower 40s. <laughs> okay. Middle-aged is... Lower the... 40s. <laughs> slightly over my 30s. <laughs> but, but what I can say, um, and this is really sad to reflect on, is that like I am without question at a... Like I, I have a, a, a long list of people that I've already lost. Right. Like people that I've lost who did not make it through their 20s, did not make it through their 30s, did not make it through their early 40s. I also have a long list of people that I know that are on their second and third marriage. Right. And I think these are things that, you know, a lot of people don't oftentimes connect the dots. But, you know, it's like it's one of those things when you're looking back on your life, what are you going to wish you'd done differently? And I think, again, aside from parenting and having children, even if you don't have children, sometimes it's just about you know, I wish I had just the opportunity to spend more time with the people that I love. I wish I had uh, not spent so much time just like at work and focused on making more money. And so when we talk about cashing out, again, it's not just a matter of like building wealth for the purposes of buying things and going nice places. It's so that you can reprioritize your time around the things that really, really matter to you. And I think the third thing, uh, again, this is like sort of thinking about like what's changed. And again, I don't think a lot has changed. It's more so kind of fortified. It's that like through it all, like through it all, like all the craziness. Like I think most people just take the time to think about everything that has happened just in the span of a year, the last two years, three years. Like a lot has happened from the pandemic to layoffs to all this stuff. Like the stock market does not care. Like it has completely ignored and defied odds. And yes, we've seen some dips, but like its primary purpose to create value for shareholders has not changed. It is still trucking along. And so if you were invested before then and you are invested now, or rather you decide to invest today, like that should be such a fundamental core part of everything that we do because the value is there. And literally all you have to do is buy something as simple as a total stock market index fund. And that will continue to grow and add value with no middleman, no complication, no analysis, no nothing. And I think that's sort of where I am. Again, as I think about the evolution of our message, it's not so much that I've changed or that the things have changed. It's like these things I think are becoming, they're owning more real estate in my heart and my mind than they ever have before. Yeah. There is this concept called the Overton window, which is basically a concept that suggests that there's a range of ideas that are acceptable to discuss. Anything that's outside of the Overton window is not considered to be politically correct or socially acceptable to talk about. Now, the number of ideas that make it through the Overton window to achieve this mainstream popularity and presence in general conversation are tiny. Pushing an idea through the window requires this perfect storm of excitement and demand and events and books and credibility and just a number of things all happening at once. And so when I think about the evolution of our message and whether it has legs, 
I actually think there's a chance that it could that it could get through it. I think yeah. the idea of cashing out and the lifestyle of being rich and regular instead of rich and famous can get through that window over the next couple of years. And we plan to do our part. You know, we've recently launched a podcast called The Cashing Out Podcast, which is a continuation of the book to an extent and tackles some of the subjects that we just didn't have room or space or the perspective to cover in those pages. Yeah. It's a video first podcast, so we do recommend watching it, but you can find it on our YouTube channel, Rich and Regular, or if you prefer to listen to it, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a bit of a different format than this one in that we do interviews on the Cashing Out podcast and incorporate other media to make it more of an immersive audio experience. Yeah, the conversation that I was referring to with Deepa is actually on that yes. podcast. If yes. you're interested in wanting to hear that uh, and more about the delusions and all the other things she talks about, uh, go ahead and give that episode a listen. Yes, the other difference with the Cashing Out podcast is that it's not a weekly format. It's seasonal. So new episodes don't drop nearly as often as this one does. But we felt this creative push to keep the message going. And audio feels like it gives us far more flexibility to insert nuance and tone and jokes to kind of get the message across. So I'm really proud of that work. And I'm really hoping that some of the topics that we talk about on a regular basis start to go through the Overton window and are not controversial or require this tiptoeing or you have to preface it where like, excuse me, this may be not trying to offend. Like you could just talk about the things that we know happen in real life at great frequency. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's going to take me some time to not think about Overton. I know from um, a from living, living single, single <laughs> but, but I hear you like, sure. <laughs> He's got a theory. Okay. Overton. Yeah. Overton's window. <laughs> All right. Last thing I'll say here is really just around like the evolution of our message. And that's not like a bit of a warning sign that things are going to change around here. I think it's really just a continuation of some of the things that I've already been talking about. Right. And I think it's like, you know, now that we've combed through the research and the data and the analysis and the numbers and had, gosh, like hundreds of conversations with people about their lives and their careers and their 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 financial lives and all that stuff. I think as we start to identify uh, what the common threads are and what the common motivations are, just like a politician would, you know, it starts to shape your message a little bit. And I think one of the things that we really look forward to talking about more in the future than we have uh, in the past is really just like the importance of family and the role that family plays as a really, really great motivator for change in any regard, right? So whether it's, hey, I want to get in better shape, like more often than not, like family, the idea of like being able to enjoy your family time a little bit more or prepare your future generation for whatever you anticipate coming, like family more often than not is something that I think is a great motivator. And so when we think about those dynamics and the challenges and just helping people overcome them, I think that's really, really going to be helpful because it's all kind of connected, right? Like you can know all the right things, read all the books, listen to all the podcasts, but if your mom and your dad aren't on board, or if there's like this familial expectation that X, Y, Z must happen, like those are things that can either support or derail whatever it is that you plan for yourself. And so we really want to help people do a lot of those things. And I would say also just from the standpoint of wealth preservation or really culture preservation, like a lot of those things are underpinned by the financial decisions that you make, right? When wealth is lost or if wealth is not built, a lot of the stories and the belongings and the properties and all the things that sort of make a family a family kind of fade away. And uh, we want to make sure that that doesn't happen for people, especially if they've done a lot of work to protect or build up what they have 
just the other day, we were watching a television show as a part of Apple TV Plus. It's called Home. And if you're big into interior design, like you really should check this out or like architecture. It's a beautiful, beautiful show. But one of the episodes that we saw in season two, I think, was about a group of families in Sag Harbor, Long Island, which is this neighborhood. And they just talked about all the work that the grandfather did to sort of build the home and preserve the home and then how they attracted and connected with other people and built up this community. And you just saw all this intergenerational love between grandparents and parents and children and all of them sort of together. And then they did all this work to make sure that everything that they built all the properties that were on the coastline that obviously have built and amassed a lot of wealth over the years, but would stay in the family, right? Not just for the purposes of showing it on television, but like for the purposes of ensuring that their stories are not lost. And I just thought that was really, really cool and beautiful to watch. And I was moved by it. And so all of that to say, man, it's all about family going forward. And, um, you know, obviously this is not going to be the topic for everything, but I think I think you'll hear a lot more about our reflections and connecting it to family. And, um, yeah, I look forward to helping a lot of people in that regard in the future. Love it. All right. Final thoughts. So my final thought is just a reminder for people to spend more time with their ideas. Oh, I thought you were going to say families. (laughs) No, you've talked enough (laughs) about families. (laughs) But for real, spend more time with your ideas, because I know a lot of the marketing that's out there is around there being some big secret to everything. And all you got to do is X, Y, Z, and it'll be revealed to you. But today, I really would just want to encourage you to spend more time with your own ideas, explore them, argue with them, repeat them. But most importantly, write them down, not because you want to write a book or anything, but because of what we talked about with linguistic relativity. Your ideas are what shapes the world. You giving you giving language to your ideas is what shapes how you perceive the world. So sometimes the thing that you're missing is inside you the whole time. The call is coming from inside the house. And so I encourage you to just take some time, write down the ideas that nag you and spend time nurturing them. Yeah, I I completely agree. I'm going to say my thoughts on family were my final thoughts, but I will say (laughs) just thank you. Thank you to everyone that's listened to the audiobook. Thank you to everyone that's read the physical book, that went to stores to buy it, that ordered it from Amazon, that recommended it and gifted it. And I would say for everyone who read it and didn't act on anything, like, Don't beat yourself up, but also like don't let yourself off the hook, right? Right. Like there's still time. And I'm sure that's not the only thing that you weren't able to do, right? Like we're all really, really busy. It's normal to do that. The message is still relevant. As we said before, you could argue or debate that it's more relevant now than it was even a year ago when the book was released. And so if you've read it, thank you very much. If you've read it and you haven't left us a review, please, please, please do so. It's really going to help more people get access to this message. Uh, So please, wherever you read it, whether it's Amazon or bought it, excuse me, Amazon, Audible, Barnes and Nobles, you name it. If you could leave us a five-star review for cashing out, we would so much appreciate it. Ah, you're still in my line. You know, I'm well, that's for the books for review at the end of the episode. Okay. Well, let's see what you got for the the (laughs) podcast episode. Now I'm all thrown off. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success. If today's episode encouraged you to start writing, you can start with a five-star rating and review Mm. (laughs) on your favorite podcast platform. We will see you next week.